Welcome to the Restoration Church Podcast. To learn more about our church, give, share a prayer request, or access our weekly worship guide, visit us at www.restorationlex.com slash this week. As we move into this season of life moving into the fall, we're learning what it means to say enough because every single day we are bombarded by stories and advertisements that are preaching to us this gospel of more, like you will be happy and more fulfilled if you get more, if you make more time, if you have more stuff. All of the messages of the American dream that we are bombarded with on a daily basis. And so as followers of Jesus in these few weeks we're spending together in this particular topic, we're asking what if our limitations that we have in life, the limitations that we run into all the time are actually gifts and not hindrances. What if those times when we come to the end of ourselves, the end of our resources, the end of our energy, they're not things that we should avoid, but opportunities to enter into a freedom that we could not find otherwise. So we've talked about rest and Sabbath. Last week we talked about how we manage and steward and honor our time as followers of Jesus. And this week we're going to go where we were inevitably going to go. We're going to spend time speaking about perhaps the most dangerous topic to talk about in the church. We're going to talk about money. Now, boom, 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 yes. Now, I, I, I realize that's maybe scary and dangerous. More accurately, though, we're going to zoom out and talk about what it means with our stuff. And I, I, as we do this today, I want to honor and to recognize that when a lot of us come into a room like this, we bring in our stories and experience with the church, and a lot of people have let's just say, some bad experiences when it comes to money and finances in the church. I won't make you raise your hand, but I bet you you have stories, and I can promise you today I have stories. We have seen not only in the media stories of pastors and private jets and, and the absolute waste of money in so many different areas, um, just to let you guys know, I only... I charter flights. I don't own my own jet anymore. When I became pastor, I sold my private jet to honor God. So, no. But that's what we have known. We've seen so many abusive situations when it comes to finances in the church. And so, I I just want to say up front, if that's you, if that's your story, we honor that. That is, (laughs) that's something a lot of us share. But I also have known and have seen on a personal level absolutely incredible supernatural generosity in the church. I have seen people meet needs that could not be met otherwise. I have seen generous people, both rich and poor, step into situations and offer the the perspective of the kingdom through generosity that has radically shifted relationships and the trajectory of people's lives. And so as much as I have seen and you have seen and witnessed these bad examples, I have also, and I hope you have also known and seen some incredible stories of what it means to be generous. And so as we broach this subject, I want to do it with 
reverence. And I want to do it asking for us that the Holy Spirit would awaken our hearts to see our stuff, our money, our finances through the lens of Jesus. So pray with me as we jump in this morning. Father, I, I, I come with fear and trembling knowing, Lord, that you desire that the way that we love you and our neighbors and even our enemies with our finances and resources and things, it matters. And we inhabit a world, Lord, that is driven so often by profit, by the bottom line, where we are called to make our neighbors our competition, where we are taught to see our resources as a place of scarcity and not abundance. And so, Jesus, today, would you speak truth to us with compassion and grace? Lord, where that tension that maybe we even feel in our bodies about a subject like this, would you just give us the peace and the assurance that you are present and at work? Lord, may my words be your words. May May I speak from that compassion that you have for all of us who are learning to steward our lives in the kingdom of God. So give us that grace today in the name of Jesus. Amen. So, let's start here. When it comes to how we look at our finances through the lens of the scriptures, there's so much that you could point to that it, it's kind of hard to know where to start. So, I think the best place to start is really on the first page of the scriptures. God speaks the world into existence, this creation narrative. He speaks life into being, and then he makes us, he forms us, man and woman, in his image to bear his image to the world, to proclaim his goodness to the world. And as we look at the creation narrative in Genesis 1 and 2, we see over and over again that God creates this world that we live in from and for, for the purpose of abundance. What we see in the beginning is that the economy of God, in the economy of God, there is always enough to go around. There is always enough for everyone. But when we see Genesis 3 enter into the picture, sin enters creation, and with sin, it comes on the back of this lie. The serpent, as he is tempting Eve, speaks these words to her in verses 4 and 5 of Genesis 3. It says, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I don't know if you caught that. This singular lie that has formed the foundation of almost every lie in the temptations that you and I face on a daily basis. In this world of abundance, what the, the enemy is trying to make us believe is that God is ultimately withholding good from us. Even though there's lots and lots to enjoy in the garden, it's that one tree, it's that one thing that God said, do not eat because it will surely kill you, this lie that's brought into our existence is this lie of scarcity. Sin gives birth in this moment, in this place, to teaching us in a world of abundance to live from scarcity. And so as Scripture continues, what we see is the same struggle. The people of God continually choosing scarcity, choosing fear over abundance. 
choosing the belief that God is out there, yes, but ultimately, ultimately he's holding back, and therefore I must guard what is mine for myself. This is the mindset of scarcity. So when Moses even leads the people of God out of slavery into the desert, he introduces the law and the, of the Israelites. And over and over again, when we look at these commands, we see that the commands of God, they're centered on this idea of abundance. They're centered on us learning to trust God and trust that his heart is a heart of abundance. A very clear example we talked about a couple of weeks ago is Sabbath. Why in the world can you and I stop and rest? Or why should we? I mean, why not take that day and just work more, produce more, gain more for ourselves? Especially in a world that tells us that everyone around us is competition. We have to get what we can because we may run out. But in the economy of God, we're learning to trust that there's always enough to go around. And rest, Sabbath rest, is the intentional discipline, slowing down, trusting that if I stop, God can do more in six days than I can do in seven. I'm trusting intentionally that I can slow down and trust the abundance of God to know that if I'm not producing, God will make a and on top of this, Sabbath is a declaration towards our neighbors as well, continuously, that I can slow down and rest because I don't have to turn you and you and you into competition for what's out there. I don't have to stand over and against you in fear because if you have much, I may have little. Or if I have much, you may have little because we are learning in the economy of God that there's always enough to go around. Are you with me? And this is why when the Bible talks about you gaining economic life at the expense of your neighbors, the Bible says you sit under the judgment of God. I mean, some of the harshest judgments in the Scriptures come towards people who exploit those for financial gain. Isaiah 58, 9 and 10 says, why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? What's happening here is all of the religious folks of Israel in this moment are doing all of the outward things. They're showing up for church. They're looking so nice and religious, and yet they don't find the blessing of God. Here's how God responds in this. It says, yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please. And you exploit all your workers. So if you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and the malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, and then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. Do you get that? Those of you who are gaining on the backs of your neighbors... What real religion is to you is to actually treat your neighbors with equity and kindness and love. I didn't say it. It's in the Bible. It's just right there. 
Over and over again, we see this in the law of Moses. It becomes clear that abundance is not just something I receive as an individual. Abundance is a posture and a culture that we as the people of God build together. There's some, listen, I know there's wild, wild stuff in the Old Testament law. Can I get an amen on that? There is some Stuff that is not, I would be glad the kids were upstairs if I had to read some of this stuff, clearly. But there's also some phenomenal callings towards this abundance. Leviticus 19, we see that Jews were commanded to always leave the edges of their field unplowed and unharvested so that the poor who did not have any could come on the edge and harvest and have some for their own. Culturally built in care for the poor and the marginalized. Even Leviticus 25, which I would love for this to be implemented today, Leviticus 25 introduces this idea of what we just sang, Jubilee. Every 50 years, everyone's debts were forgiven, and everyone's land and property was returned to its original original owner. And, And this is because in this this built-in nationwide mechanism of building a culture where we as the people of God trust in abundance. I don't have to make you my competition. I don't have to be afraid that there's not enough to go around. Now, over and over again, the people of God have failed at this. But then in the Gospels, we see Jesus come into the world. Jesus, the living and breathing abundance of God, taking on flesh and blood. He begins his ministry, and he does so when he announces the beginning of his ministry in Luke. He quotes from, interestingly, Isaiah 61. It says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That phrase there, the year of the Lord's favor, in the Greek is jubilee, jubilee. Interestingly, when Jesus says, I'm coming to bring the kingdom of God, what he says is coming is a time when all debts are forgiven, when the slate is wiped clean, not just every 50 years, but every moment of your life. You have entered into a perpetual jubilee when Jesus has brought the freedom and paid your debt in full. And now, because of this, we live in spiritual and emotional and financial financial, and relational abundance. Amen? That's good news. And he came to embody this with his life and not just with this teaching. We see this clearly in the Sermon on the Mount where there is a whole bunch of radical stuff where he doesn't lower the bar of what we see in the Old Testament. He kind of, kind of raises it. He kind of calls us even deeper. Matthew 6, 25, this beautiful passage here that's about how we understand our stuff. He tells us, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This was written 2,000 years ago, and that statement could not still be more relevant for our day. 
you cannot serve both God and money. When money and stuff are our God, they preach us constantly the gospel of scarcity. That's the irony and the paradox of believing and worshiping money and stuff as our God. It makes you look like there is abundance, but it can't stop preaching to you scarcity. That you'll never have enough. That there's not enough to go around. It wants you to live in perpetual fear. It wants you to choose to see people as competition instead of seeing people as an opportunity for compassion. But what God has revealed in Jesus is this abundance and freedom that puts away the idols of scarcity. He continues in Matthew 6. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? I mean, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? That's in the top ten of mic drops on Jesus right there, just... Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? What scarcity does is it feeds on our anxieties. It feeds on our fears. It continues to speak that same lie from Genesis 3, that God ultimately is withholding good from us. And ultimately, then, there is not going to be enough to go around. And like the Israelites in the desert, we are learning, you and I are learning to trust this protection and provision of God, the abundance of God in a world that is preaching constantly the gospel of scarcity towards us. It's why this passage in Matthew 6, which I encourage you to come and read this week, gather uh, your Bibles together and read this as a community. Read Matthew 6 this week. It's phenomenal. It closes, it culminates, it jumps up towards this moment by saying, but seek first in his kingdom and his righteousness, and all this will be added to you as well. Now, Jesus is saying these words of don't worry about your life and your clothes and your stuff, not to a people who have lots and lots of things. These were poor, marginalized people who are living under an incredibly oppressive regime in Rome. And so this is not spoken from a place of privilege and power. He's saying, seek first my kingdom and the world of Rome that exploits you and the world of Rome that is preaching to you this gospel of scarcity. But if you seek my kingdom, you will find these things because there's always enough to go around. Now, this is where we talk about what this means for us. Because all of this is well and good, but when we pull up our bank statements and open up our wallets, when we look around at the stuff that we have accumulated over time, 
you and I, no matter if we have a lot or not much at all, we have to and we need to root our lives in the wisdom of God of what this actually looks like together. We need to know, I need to know what abundance looks like on the ground level outside of just concepts that we talk about on Sunday morning. I believe what, where we start in this is acknowledging that the Bible, when it talks about abundance, abundance is, is not a number, it is a posture that we live from. Abundance is not this level that we get it up here where we're finally comfortable and free from the anxieties and fears of the world because we've reached up here. Abundance is a posture that we choose to enter into through our trust in God. It's a way of seeing our world. It's a way of seeing our neighbors. It's a way of seeing the money we have, not so much as the stuff we have accumulated, but as the abundance from which we have come to steward and live in love. There's a couple of different ways this works itself out. First, I would, I would present to you today that abundance really is rooted in this idea we find in the New Testament of contentment. Because nothing threatens our fear and our anxiety that scarcity tells us about every single day by, than by just simply learning this heartbeat of contentment that we see throughout the Scriptures. Now, I say this I know that's really, really hard. And this is one of the primary dangers of social media as we scroll through every single day. Contentment is extremely hard to find when our algorithms and our media that we consume on a daily basis is designed to make us discontent. You and I are bombarded with advertisements on a daily basis that's telling us if you get this product, if you do these things, you will be more happy than you are. On top of that, what we present to the world is a highly curated and often misrepresented picture of our bliss and happiness. No one posts the anti-highlight reel of their lives. No one posts the video, the video of you and your kids. No one posts how absolutely destroyed your house is right now, and you're trying to get that angle. You ever done that taking pictures in your house, and you're trying to get that angle of you and your kids that doesn't have the seven-foot-high tall, you know, thing of laundry that you've left out there? We curate these images of ourselves and only see the best. And in this comparison, what we do is measure our lives against everyone else. We measure our worst against everyone else's highlight reels. It's a misrepresentation of reality. And when we enter into comparison, comparison gives way to competition. I start seeing you and your life and your car and your house and your vacation and your kids as competition that I measure myself up against. And when I enter into this posture of condemnation, I start giving way to envy. I really wish I had a job like they did. I really, really wish I could have the freedom of financial life that those people do. I, I really wish I could have the free time in my schedule to just go out and hang out with my friends like those people do. Envy then, out of this envy, we start getting greedy. Because if I got to get to that level, if I have to compare myself to them, I have to hold on for dear life with what I have. Because if I lose it, I can't catch up. 
Does this in any way feel familiar to any of you? Because it certainly does to me. And in between these misrepresentations of reality that we scroll through are advertisements that in very profoundly scary ways kind of know what we're looking for. I get insane amounts of grow your hair back advertisements. Even though I'm not interested, I rebuke that in Jesus' name. Bald is beautiful. Amen? But what this is telling me, what this is telling you, is that you're not enough. And every advertisement is designed to make you discontent. In fact, there's a term for this in advertising. It's called constructive discontent. It's the practice of highlighting a problem so a product can be presented as a solution. Every advertisement is telling you you have a problem that only it can solve. In other words, there are billions and billions and billions of dollars being spent right now to ensure that you are unhappy, to ensure that you are discontent, so that you will spend your hard-earned money on something you will believe will make your life what it could not be otherwise. All this to say that when I say abundance is rooted in contentment, I know how countercultural and difficult that can be if we are not intentional. And it's why we need to remind ourselves as well how Abundance is different from the prosperity gospel, how it's different from how we see these things. So let's start here with Philippians 4. Paul is speaking this to the church in Philippi, who, again, is not a people of means, a people who are mostly poor and marginalized. He says, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what, know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. We've talked about this in the taking verses out of, a, uh, out of context Olympics, that this is the gold medal always. That when it says, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, it's not saying I can make all your wildest dreams come true like Pedro in Napoleon Dynamite. It's saying, I can do all things through Christ who has taught me the contentment to know I can handle this, whether I have nothing or whether I have everything. This verse was written in the context of a man who had been in poverty and need and a man who had lived with plenty. And he's saying, I have learned as I have followed Jesus to trust that whatever I have, whatever has come my way, I can handle it. Because I know now that God is not withholding good from me. He and he alone is my provision and my abundance. And because of this, I have everything I need, everything I need, everything I need, even if I don't have what I think I should. And this is the difference between the abundance of God and what we have known as the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel, if you don't know what that is, is where you believe that, hey, if I have more faith, 
and, and I do all the right things, then God will bless me financially. He can be everything that I want. It's, and, and the problem with the prosperity gospel is not that it's too much. It's that it's too little. It's too small a vision of the gospel. It sees abundance simply as this material wealth, this success that only the good people can reach out to. But the gospel of Jesus over and over again teaches us that abundance can be just as present when we have nothing at all as it can when we have plenty. Listen, the people I've known who live in the abundance of God more than anyone else, can I be real clear? It's people who don't have much. Some of the most generous people I have ever met in my life were poor. And they lived from abundance, not because it was a number, but because in Christ it was a posture that they chose together. But as we come to trust this abundance, whether we have much or whether we have little, we learn that that abundance turns us outwards towards others as well. So not only is abundance rooted in contentment, out of this we learn that abundance is empowering generosity. Remember this in Jesus' command when he says, don't worry about your stuff. Trust then seek my kingdom first and my righteousness and all this will be added to you. He says that in Matthew 6. Now, after the resurrection, after the ascension into heaven, Acts 2 and Acts 4 begins painting this picture who actually take him seriously. Acts 2, 42 through 45 says all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Acts, Acts 4, 32 says all the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, we are prone to project modern American political and economic categories on verses like this, but I would just like to invite you today to, to stop. Don't. Because what Jesus is doing is defying categories. He is defying ideologies. He is defying our allegiances and calling us to the allegiance of a different kind of kingdom in this world. What we see is these are communities of men and women who are taking Jesus seriously enough to intentionally choose abundance when scarcity is the far easier option. And just like today, the church is made up in Acts 2 and Acts 4 and throughout the book of Acts, it's made up of people who are both wealthy and who have almost nothing at all. One of the things I love about our church is this is a very socioeconomically diverse community. There are people with much and there are people with little. And I've seen generosity in every spectrum of relationship here. And so, in the early church, we see people like Lydia. We find out about her in Acts 16. She's this wealthy businesswoman, and she is meeting with the church. She is leveraging her wealth to empower Paul in the ministry of the church. Over and over again, what, what becomes clear is that the Bible is not anti-wealth. It's anti-greed. There's lots of people in the kingdom of God then and now who are stewarding and using their wealth in profoundly impactful ways in our church and beyond. I am so grateful for the people who have invested 
their wealth in the kingdom, both in this church and outside the walls of our church. I've seen it over and over again. What we find, though, is when we encounter the wealth we have, the Bible is clear about our greed and whatever, uh, whatever we have, whether we withhold it for ourselves and live in scarcity or we use our wealth, what God has given us with much or with little to enhance our ability to love well. Some of the most generous people, I'll say it again, are some of the poorest. And that's because abundance is not a number we reach. It is a posture that we live in. It is how you and I live in light of who Jesus is. Now, as I close, you may have noticed that I've made it this whole way and I've not talked one time about giving to the church. High five to me. Now, I, I want to take a minute here and just speak from the heart first. Like, I feel like I, I felt led this morning to, to apologize, to repent, because in the six and a half years at this church, I, I should have talked about this more. I really should. And knowing many of the wounds that you guys have had with church and money and the stories that you've have experienced, and honestly, knowing my stories that I've walked through and have seen, I've been a little fearful about this topic because I want to steward the healing that many of us are going through well. And so I, I want to be more intentional in the days and months and years ahead of teaching on what the Bible and really what the kingdom calls us to when it comes to what God has blessed us with in our resources. So if I have tiptoed around these things, I repent and I don't want to do that anymore. So just to be real brief and quick here, people have often asked me, the number one question I get is, do you believe in tithing? I mean, sure. What we see in the scriptures is the Old Testament talks a lot about tithing. But then it gets to the New Testament. The New Testament doesn't really talk about tithing. And so there's some, there's some disagreement here. Now, I believe tithing is a great pr a principle and resource, and I have, there are people in this church that are tithing. I'm so, so honored with that. But the New Testament, in not talking about tithing, does not lower the bar. It raises it. Because the New Testament says be generous. There's a lot of people that can tithe and still have ways and means to meet the needs of the people who need. The Bible in the New Testament in particular, calls us to a posture of abundance, of generosity, that have common ways that are profoundly, profoundly Christ-like and beautiful. So what I pray for as we drop our offerings in the box, and we say every week, we make a point to say, we're so grateful that you are a generous church, is praying for and asking. In this season where I know it's a, there's a lot to, to deal with financially for so many of us. It is a difficult time to, shoot, buy groceries, for goodness sake, much less show up and give to a church. And so you're not under the judgment of God. I just want you to know that. And I believe through a community of generosity, 
that God meets every need. And what I have watched now for six and a half years is that through a community of generosity, every single need has been met. And I'm proud to see people give to this church because I believe in what we're giving, what we're doing. I believe in what God is doing. And we're doing our best to steward what God has given us in ways that honor the kingdom. It's why in here we don't have lots of bells and whistles. It's why we have old speakers. It's why we choose simplicity. It's why we meet in a building that we do not own currently, not that that can't change. It's because our goal in the way that we operate as a church is stewarding for the kingdom and not for you to show up and be blown away by the awesome Broadway show we put on every week. Because I'm not very good at Broadway. I try. Here's what the scriptures say in 2 Corinthians 7. Close with this. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap also sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you've decided to give for your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. When it comes to being a healthy financial church, living from the abundance of God, yes, giving is one way to measure that. Another way to measure that, though, is what we see in Acts 2 and Acts 4, and that are their needs being met? A couple of years ago, before the pandemic, we had a service where we talked about generosity. It was one of the most powerful Sunday mornings we ever had here. Some of you were there and maybe remember this, but speaking of this, we wanted to take the scriptures seriously. We wanted to do something radical and knowing that in rooms like this, there are actual, tangible needs that people have. And there are also people in this room with tangible resources that can meet needs. And so as we move into a time of communion and into a time of prayer and response, I, I want to throw out something that may feel uncomfortable in the moment. And you don't have to come up. You don't have to even make this time when, when this happens, but we want to see the radical generosity of God acting through His church. And so if you have any need that you have, you need met right now, if you have any need that you, that you need meeting right now, I want you sometime before you leave today, come and see me. Let me know. And if you are a person here today who you know right now maybe God is stirring your heart, I have some resource, and I want to step out and meet a need for someone in our church. I want you to come to me today too. I want to walk away and have a story next week where, or multiple stories next week, where someone came in here feeling the heaviness of a financial or relational, some sort of need that they're working with, and someone radically in the church generously met that need in a way that broke down the walls and saw the kingdom come. Let's, let's take the Bible seriously. Let's see what happens. I'm willing to risk that. So I want to pray, and as the Lord leads and responds, I would love to see his kingdom break in and generosity, that the love of God could be met here.
among us. Father, thank you for your goodness to us in every single way. Would you teach us contentment? Would you teach us generosity? Jesus, you have modeled in every way the life that you have called us to. You've called us out of ourselves, out of scarcity, out of greed, out of fear. And you've called us into the abundance of seeing both you and our neighbors and ourselves as opportunities, as places where your generosity can meet needs. And so, Jesus, this morning, would you stir in us? May your radical Holy Spirit generosity meet us in tangible ways today and this week. I pray against fear. I pray against pride. I pray against all those things that would keep us to say, no, I, I, I can't, I can't, I can't. But today, maybe, Lord, that there's needs that can be met in the lives of people right here in this room or even those who are watching at home. Lord, we love you and we thank you.